Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our first 2023 sermon series, Speaking with a Wesleyan Voice, Rediscovering Our Methodist Tradition for Today. You can find out more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. As we get started this morning, I want to address a question that I've been getting since we started this series a few weeks ago. And that question is, Scott, if we're Methodists, why do we keep talking about speaking with a Wesleyan voice? Anyone have that question? I mean, it makes sense to me because there is a Wesleyan church, a Wesleyan denomination in addition to our United Methodist denomination. So I could see where the confusion can come from. And the basic answer to that question is that they mean the same thing, right? Not in the denominational sense, but in the theological sense. So to be Methodist is to be part of the Wesleyan theological tradition. And to be Wesleyan is to be part of the Methodist tradition. It doesn't mean that you're part of a certain denomination. Both terms just describe the theological heritage in which we stand. We trace our doctrine back through John Wesley all the way to the early church. And John Wesley's the guy who started the Methodist movement. This is why I put both terms in our sermon series title and subtitle. Speaking with a Wesleyan voice, rediscovering our Methodist tradition for today. But I thought it might be helpful to hear directly, I mean, through his writings, from John Wesley about what he thought a Methodist was. And I'd be curious, I want you to listen to this. It's a little bit of an extended quote. You might be able to read it with me. Maybe you can't see that far. It's okay. Um, But I want you to listen. And and if there's anything in there you disagree with, I want to hear about it after the service. Don't interrupt me during the sermon. But after the service, I want to hear about it. All right, so this is what Wesley said in his piece, uh, Advice to the People Called Methodists. By Methodist, I mean a people who profess to pursue in whatsoever measure they've attained holiness of heart and life, inward and outward conformity in all things to the revealed will of God. Those who place religion in a uniform resemblance of the great object of it, in steady imitation of him they worship, in all his imitable perfections, but more particularly in justice and mercy and truth, or universal love filling the heart and governing the, lo- the life. If you walk by this rule, continually endeavoring to know and love and resemble and obey the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the God of love, of pardoning mercy, If from this principle of loving, obedient faith, you carefully abstain from all evil and labor as you have the opportunity to do good to all men, friends or enemies. If lastly, you you unite together to encourage and help each other in thus working out your salvation. And for that end, watch over one another in love. You are they whom I mean by Methodists. There's nothing terribly controversial in there. I think that's what we're all aspiring to, right? 
So last week I spoke about some of the key events that led John Wesley to the point of beginning this Methodist movement, but we didn't really talk so much about why he felt God had raised up the people called Methodists. And, and one time they were meeting together, the preachers in a meeting, and uh, one of the preachers asked Wesley that question. He said, why did God raise up this people called Methodists? And John said, well, it wasn't to form any new sect but to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. See, Wesley didn't start out, he didn't set out to start a new denomination. He remained an Anglican until the day that he died. His goal was to reform the church, to revive the people of England in what he called heart religion, religion uh, makes a difference in our hearts. And Wesley felt that in the Church of England in his day, people were falling into one of two extremes. Either, either they were falling into formalism on the one hand, which led to a dry and ritualistic kind of faith. This would be people who thought that just because they were baptized at some point, that meant they were a Christian forever and ever after that. Or we might think of people today who claim to be part of a church, but you only ever see them darken the doorway of the church on Easter and Christmas Eve. So on the one side, we've got this formalism. Well, he was also concerned about them falling into what was called antinomianism. You can spell that afterwards without Googling it. I'll, I'll give you a handshake or something. Um, but, but it literally means, it's a big word, that means people who are anti-law. They, they thought that because of the grace of God that we've received, they were then free to live however they wanted. It was like Paul said uh, to the Romans, you know, should we keep on sinning so that grace can increase? No, absolutely not. But they wanted to to live in that kind of a freedom. So in between these two extremes of formalism and antinomianism, we find Wesley calling people back to a religion of the heart, of a faith that takes seriously the call to holiness that we find in scripture, which Wesley calls in one of his letters, the grand deposit with which the people, that God had lodged with the people called Methodists. And that starts, as we talked last week, with an emphasis on our being saved by grace through faith. But it goes on because salvation is more than just being justified. It includes our sanctification and ultimately it will include our glorification. And so I mentioned last week that one of the common images of justification in the evangelical world is that legal picture in which we're declared not guilty because Christ took the punishment in our place. But throughout church history and all through scripture, this isn't the only image that's used to describe what happens when we're justified. One of the key scriptural pictures um, that influenced Wesley about uh, the, the Christian life was the picture of the new birth, right? When Jesus met with Nicodemus that night, uh, we hear him say those words in John chapter three, verse three, when Jesus tells him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
And so at justification, we are not only declared right with God in a legal sense, we're born again or born anew. At the moment of our justification, we begin in a very real sense, a new life. Right? Because if we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, and that's what Paul told us last week in Ephesians chapter two was true, dead in our sins and transgressions, then the only solution to that problem is new life. And that new life begins at the new birth. But that new birth doesn't just lead us to a, a new life qualitatively. It's not just about time where, where the life we're living now extends infinitely or our clock starts ticking again from the beginning so we have more time. We're not talking about the fountain of youth. It's a qualitatively different kind of life. Everything about it is different. It's a life in which the life of God is lived in our bodies a life that's able to respond to and cooperate with the grace of God, which calls us to live a life of holiness. We couldn't respond to that grace of God when we were dead. But once we receive the new birth, that grace begins to work in our lives. Wesley's belief that we are when we are justified, we also receive that new birth when we receive the new birth, we really receive a new life, led him to one of his most controversial concepts. You ready for this? Everyone likes a little controversy, right? It's a little wild. It's a little radical. It was more controversial than his disagreements with the Calvinists over free will and what the relationship of free will and sovereignty was. It's more controversial with his own followers than his insistence on remaining with the Anglican church rather than going out and starting a new church. So are you ready? Here's the controversy. Wesley actually believed that when the Bible says in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. It says it again in Leviticus 19, 2 and in 1 Peter 1, Verse 16, it is written, be holy because I am holy. Wesley believed that when the Bible says that, that we are to be holy as God is holy, God really meant it. God meant it and he means it. This was in contrast to most of the Christians of the day who believed that even after we come to salvation, the best that we could hope for is that we'll sin every day in thought, word, and deed. So because Wesley believed what the Bible said, he began to teach that because we're justified by grace through faith, and with that justification, we receive new birth which means we die to sin and we die to self and we begin to live in the new life that's possible because of the resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling presence of the spirit in our lives. God's grace can work in our lives to sanctify us, to make us holy, to enable us to share God's character. Or as Kevin Watson puts it in his book, perfect love, entire sanctification, which is what we've been talking about here. 
It's the doctrine that defines Methodism's audacious optimism that the grace of God saves us entirely to the uttermost. You see, Wesley believed that God could not only save us, but he could save us completely. Where I think Wesley got in trouble or where the controversial part came into play is that he chose to take his language from the passage in Matthew 5, 48, in which Jesus is making reference to those passages from Leviticus. But instead of saying, be holy because your father in heaven is holy, Matthew records Jesus saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And so Wesley decided on using the phrase Christian perfection to describe the work that God is able to do in our lives after we've been justified. But the problem is, when you and I hear the word perfect, our minds automatically start thinking in terms of absolute perfection, of flawless perfection. And so did Wesley's contemporaries. That's why it was controversial to them. Because there's something within us that knows that we can never be absolutely perfect, absolutely flawless, at least not in this life. So then we tend to reject the idea of perfection out of hand. But this was why Wesley always insisted that it be spoken of as Christian perfection. He felt that that qualifier, sticking Christian on the front of it, should be enough to let people know that he wasn't speaking about an absolute perfection. And so I think we do better not to give up that key Methodist doctrine because we don't like the wording of it, but to be willing to shift the language that we use to talk about it. I think it's unfortunate that beginning with the translation uh, tradition that William Tyndale started and continued through the King James Version, which is what Wesley would have been using, they chose to translate that word there as perfect in Matthew 5.48. You see, the Greek word that was used there to, that's translated as perfect is teleos. And it carries the idea, yes, of perfection, but of perfection in the sense of completeness, genuineness, wholeness, maturity. So while it can be difficult to get our minds around the idea of Christian perfection, it can be helpful to think about Christian maturity or Christian wholeness. The main idea of teleos is that the item or the person that it's referring to is everything that was intended or expected it to be. Think about when you're going to do a job or a hobby or something, and you've got a job in your mind, and you know there's, there's a certain tool that's needed to accomplish it. You might go digging through the tool chest or whatever, and, and you find just the right tool. Oh, that'll be perfect to do what I need it to do. Doesn't mean that tool is flawless. It might be nicked up. It might be beaten up. It might be old. But it's perfect for the purpose that we have in mind. Or think about when a baby is born. Mom and dad are ooing and aahing all over the place. They might even say, ah, oh, he's just perfect. Right, Jeremy and Rebecca? Theo's just perfect. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that Jeremy and Rebecca 
think that Theo is never going to make a mistake. It doesn't mean that they think he's never going to choose the wrong thing or do something naughty along the way. But that baby is everything you hope an infant baby will be. 10 little fingers, 10 little toes, all that good stuff. The idea that that baby is going to be flawless, mistakeless, that ideal human being isn't in their minds, or at least it won't be by the time they have another one. <laughs> so that's the kind of idea I want us to to think about as we continue to talk about this idea of perfection. It's not this mistakeless, flawless perfection, but it's everything we were intended to be. So in the passage that Jeremy read for us from Philippians chapter three, Paul's talking about this same concept. He starts out talking about circumcision, right? Which was the mark that was applied to every male who became part of the Jewish faith and which a certain segment of Jewish Christians believed needed to be applied to every Christian believer. They thought that in order to follow Jesus the Messiah, you had to be part of the Jewish faith. Why else would you care about following the Jewish Messiah? But Paul argued that our salvation was purely by grace through faith. It didn't have to come through keeping the Jewish law. And the church came to understand then that you didn't have to become a Jew in order to become a follower of the way of Jesus. So Paul wrote to the church in Rome, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly only, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Our faith and our salvation, our holiness. It's a matter of our hearts. It's not about the outward things we do. And Paul had reason to brag about all that, right? Because he tells us in verses four to six that he was from the right group of people and he believed all the right things and he knew all the right things and he did all the right things. But he goes on to say, but that wasn't worth anything. It was trash compared to knowing Jesus, the Lord and Messiah. But but when he talks about knowing Jesus, it wasn't just this mental, intellectual, I know about him kind of sense, right? But, But knowing him, like we know a person, like we know something after we've walked through it, after we've experienced it, after we've lived through it ourselves, it's a different kind of knowing, Right, to read a biography about someone and to spend a day with that same person. And it's a different thing entirely to spend a day with someone and feel like you know them than it is to spend a lifetime with someone and say that you know them. That kind of knowing Jesus, of experiencing him and his life for Paul was worth losing all those things that he had worked his whole life to attain because he found in Christ a new life, a new reality, a new way of being that trying to keep the law by sheer willpower had never been able to accomplish. And so picking up in verse eight, Paul says, I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We like that part. And the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We don't like that part so much. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, Paul came to know that all of his good intentions, all of his striving and his trying could never lead to the life that he longed for. But to know Christ, to experience Christ's life and power by grace through faith at work in his life, not just at work in the world, but at work in Paul's life, to participate in Christ's suffering and death could enable him to also be raised to new life in Christ's resurrection. And Paul could actually become like Jesus. We can actually become like Jesus. This was Paul's vision of the new life that we have in Christ, dying with him and being raised with him to a new kind of existence in which the life of God is shared with us. That's the goal. That's what we press on toward. Now, Paul didn't think he had gotten there yet, but he believed that it was possible. And he believed it was, giving, it was worth giving up everything that he had worked for and tried to earn so that he could know Christ, the only source of life. This is what Paul says is our goal as Christians. Now later in life, as Wesley's thought matured on these things, he spoke more and more of the idea of being perfected in love rather than just talking about Christian perfection, although he never let go of that term. But in following the Apostle John's writing, in the epistle of 1 John, Wesley spoke of this perfect love as the ability to live like Jesus lived. So listen to some of these verses from 1 John. 1 John 2, verses five and six. But if anyone obeys his word, Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Or 1 John 3, verses five and six. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 1 John 4, 10 to 12. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. You see, if we've been raised to new life with Christ, then God's grace can empower us to live a life that looks like Jesus. 
a life of love for God, a life of love toward our neighbor. He can live in us and make his love complete in us. Now, all there through 1 John, when it says complete, it's the same word that Matthew says, be perfect. It's teleos. He can make his love complete, mature, whole, perfect in us. This is what God calls us to and invites us into perfect love. Not perfect performance, not perfect knowledge, not a mistake-free life, not the inability to sin, perfect love. A heart so completely oriented toward God that we are able to love our neighbor and to obey God's commands. Theologian Fred Sanders puts it like this. The goal of God's work in salvation is to renew the human person in his image. And the essence of that renewal is perfect love in the heart. The root of rebelliousness, the constant desire to sin is dug out of the heart and removed in a sovereign transforming act of God. When the heart is renewed in love and gratitude and prayer flow unceasingly from it, sanctification has reached its goal. And the Christian is perfect. This is the life that God calls us to. This is the life that God intends us, intends for us. It's the life that Jesus died and rose and gave us the spirit to be empowered to live. So friends, this morning, are you pressing on as Paul said, to gain the prize? Are you pressing on toward perfection? Have you received it by faith? Because it's only by grace through faith. If not, would you ask God to do that work in your life today? You can believe that he is able to do it. You can expect that he will do it for you. And you can ask him to do it today.